Hello, and welcome to the recap by Dive Collective. Over the next few minutes, we're going to hit the highlights of the last week's reading from our reading plan. Annika and I are excited to invite you along as we read through the Bible together. You can find our reading plan at divecollective.org. It's a free download when you sign up for our newsletter. We know that some of you love the accountability of a checklist, while others thrive from the freedom to join in whenever your schedule allows. The recap is intended to meet all of those needs. So whatever category you fit into, just know we're excited to have you here with us today. Yeah. Meredith, she's our winner. Yay, Meredith. (laughs) Yay, Meredith. Meredith, what do you need? Do you have a cup? Do you have a t-shirt? Meredith, do you have a cup? Do you have a t-shirt? What do you need? We'll mail it to Germany. I'll message her too. Okay. Welcome back to the recap. This is the September 17th episode. We are in second Samuel, still in Ezekiel. And we moved into second Corinthians this week. Second Samuel got me all um, captivated. So I ended mm, up, I know. Oh wait, am I in first Samuel? We're in first no, we're in Second Samuel. That's what I thought. Okay. I start. I kept. I kept reading. Me and too. Then realized I was like, oh, I don't need to read this yet. Yep, so I finished I, chapter fourteen. I, I like got halfway through chapter fourteen before I, and then I realized, and then I stopped. So I didn't go oh. super far ahead, but yeah, I totally got sucked into the story. That's a good sign when you can just blow through, blow past those giant numbers and keep yeah. reading. Yeah. Chapter six. Okay. Chapter six. Oh, nope. Go ahead. You go. Well, okay. So you and I have been looking at David differently this year and chapters, like you said, you are, you're, because you know, it's coming. You're a little bit more realistic about David as a human. And I'm still like, David, how David is amazing. Yeah. I just, am. I just, I think by his relationship with God, the whole time is what I've been blown away by. Like his total complete faith that God has uh-huh. his hand in that and his, and that he's got his hand on David. But I feel like chapter six is kind of the beginning of the end for David. Like it's the beginning of his like. Interesting. It's after this, might be I right. we just keep seeing him like up until, okay. So the beginning of chapter six is when he gets angry when God strikes Isaiah. Is Isaiah? Do you yeah, think? Isaiah. I don't know. Do you think I, that's when his relationship with God just becomes complicated? You know, like where I he mean, grows up and he's like, okay, maybe I don't have a good grasp on it. Like, who are you really? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, when the he first grow time up? he's ever questioned God. Well, and I don't, well, I'm not sure what your version says, but in my version, it's more like, it kind of leaves it a little open-ended about what he's mad about. Like whether he's mad at God or whether he's just mad at the situation Okay. So this is, this definitely made it sound to me like David was angry at God. Let me find it. Okay. In chapter six, verse eight, the message says, then David got angry. So, okay. So just to set the stage, they're moving the chest of God. They were going to take it back to Jerusalem. Um, It's on an ox cart and it starts to tip over and this guy as no. a reaches out. Does your say that that it starts to tip, or does it say that the ox stumbles? Oh yes, the oxen stumbled. Okay, I assumed the tipping. The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reach out reaches out to grab the chest of God, presumably to make sure it's not going to fall off of this cart because the oxen are stumbling, and God gets angry and kills him. Boom, right there. So 
chapter six, verse eight says, then David got angry because of God's deadly outburst against Uzzah. David became fearful of God that day and said, this chest is too hot to handle. How can I ever get it back to the city of David? So he just leaves it and moves on. He refuses to take the chest of God back because he's afraid. He's, he's afraid. I don't think this like fear of God is the healthy fear of God. This is David genuinely being afraid of what God is going to do. Yeah. And I think I left it more open-ended, but it literally does say David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Susa. So mm-hmm. you're right. It really doesn't sound like it is as open-ended as I thought he's actually angry with God. So you're right. It very well could be, this could be like the moment where it's like David's relationship with God becomes complicated and he was perfectly trusting and perfectly innocent in his faith up until now. And now suddenly mm-hmm. it's like, it's almost like moving into a friendship, moving from father, son, faith to like mm-hmm. friendship faith. What were you going to say? Hi, this is Erin, and I'm glad that you're studying scripture with us here on the recap. I wanted to let you know that while we take a break from dive studies in August, we are studying the parenting study that I wrote in May over on the network. Please come join us for that. You'll get the parenting study for free with an all access pass, or you can purchase the study in the shop at divecollective.org, but you can come join us on the network for discussion at www.members.divecollective.org. Our dive Genesis study will begin again in September with our study on Joseph. If you haven't joined us yet, we've been studying the book of Genesis in depth this year, starting with creation of Noah, then Abraham, and we just finished Jacob in July. You can catch those studies for free via podcast with a free community membership over on the network as well. I highly encourage you to join a live study though, through an all access pass. Those studies are far richer than you can imagine as your brothers and sisters bring their takeaways to the group each week. I can't wait to see you over in the network very soon. Now let's get back to the recap. I mean, if we keep going in second Samuel, I mean, this is the time when David has, he sins with Bathsheba and then he has Bathsheba's husband killed, and then he loses his son because of that. Um, well, because of Tamar, yeah. His because of Bathsheba, because of his sin with Bathsheba, oh, loses their Bathsheba. first son, yes. yeah, Bathsheba's son. Yeah. Um, and then there's Tamar, right? Like in this section that we read this week, there's a lot of mistakes that David makes. Yeah, and yet I just kept thinking, David is still. It doesn't change his standing with God at all. David is still a God after man's own heart, a man after God's (laughs) own heart. He still is. I mean, we, we have the Psalms mostly because of David and Mm -hmm. a lot of those are also coming out of his sin too. Yes. Um, and we have Jesus through David's line. And so I just was thinking, like I read chapter six and I thought, oh man, this is the beginning. Like this seems like the first, seems like a big turning point for David as a character in the story in his relationship with God. And yet. Well, I feel like it gives depth to it, right? Like that's kind of how we're all like, that's how we should all evolve. We should all evolve from the childlike faith to the friendship, like faith, where we realize that we can come to him in our anger, where we can be angry with him and where we can be sinful and repent and Mm -hmm. where we can't like, where we can be our whole selves with him and not just children. I mean, it's kind of neat. Now that you say that, I don't think that I've ever seen that before, but you're right. It's almost like this one moment is the breaking point from 
total innocence to that recognition that God doesn't always work the way we want him to, or expect him to work. No. And yeah, like and, we can still come to him yeah. in our brokenness. Yeah. It's just a depth. He just, he gains so much depth in his relationship with God from this point out. That's really mm-hmm. good. And then you see that too reflected in, I mean, he keeps kind of messing up until, well, well, the next chapter is when God makes his covenant with David that says like, you are the king forever, basically, you know, like I'm going to yes. keep your children on the phone. What? <laughs> Why can I not talk on the throne? Um, <laughs> Hello, this is God. <laughs> David there, one of his sons. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a good, it's kind of an accurate picture, really. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt your thought. You go and then I'll talk. Keep going. So first I want to talk about seven and then I'll go back to six. But what I love about that chapter in chapter seven is the way that God talks to him and he's talking to him about himself. Like he's talking about him in the near future, like your body. Um, sorry. When others will raise up after you, your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He's talking about Solomon here. Mm-hmm. What verse are you? This is towards the end. So at the beginning, at, starting in verse eight, yeah. God does all these things. And he says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you. Like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so that they may live there. And not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over all my people, Israel. Mm. I really love that part. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then he goes on to talk about Solomon in these next verses. Where are we? 11 through 14. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. Now he's talking about he has to be talking about Solomon because Jesus doesn't do wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. But then he gets back to the point is but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and kingdom will endure forever before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. And then, um, David goes and he prays to God. And one of the things that I love is that he knows that even though he knows in his spirit, somehow, that God is talking about the distant future. He says, Lord, Lord God, for you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind. And I just love that. Like the, the, the big riddle that Jesus, the Pharisees can't solve with Jesus where he's like, and then how is it that David says, my Lord will say to your Lord, my Lord will say to I don't remember, but he's talking about the, he's talking about the Psalm where David's Mm -hmm. talking about his Lord, who's going to be his descendant. And he's like, how can this be? And the Pharisees are like, I'm done questioning Jesus. Cause I don't know how to answer this. Mm -hmm. Peter answers it later, but this is where David is getting it. He's like, I understand that like my Lord is going to come in the distant future for all mankind. This is a promise to me forever. Somehow he grasps it in his head, even though the prayer is so meant for right now and for then, like the way that God always does that. That's the way prophecy works, I guess. But I just thought that was 
I think that was cool that he knew that. And then there, you know how there's usually like one thing from the reading that just rolls around in my head for Mm -hmm. ever. The thing that's currently rolling around in my head is this idea that Uza saw the ox stumble. So I was looking at like both of these scenes the first scene of worship, they're all worshiping before the ark as they're bringing it back. And then the ox stumbles and Uza reaches up to hold the ark. And then I was like looking at the second scene when they go and the Obed-Edom flourishes and David's like, oh, we should probably bring this to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will flourish. And they go back and this time, like the worship is far more sincere. It seems like they're taking it way more seriously than they were before. And they're, um, they're stopping every six steps to uh, um, sacrifice an ox and a calf, I think. What are you, you're thinking something I can hear. Yeah, can that's hear your the opposite. It's completely the opposite of what I was thinking when I was reading this. This worship okay. in this, to me, it seems totally put on in the second scene. Yeah. I, I mean, I can kind of understand. I mean, I, I guess. So as I was reading it this time, I, so I, the first section in six, when all of, all of this happens, when they're when David's planning to bring it to Jerusalem and as touches it and is killed and David gets angry at God, that was when I first was like, huh, interesting. This is interesting about David. So that me viewing David that way, kind of seeing like the blackness in his heart probably informed the way I read the second half of six in yeah. his worship and his dance, because I was reading that thinking, this is so fake. Like they're just trying not to, but the thing that makes me think, okay, this was legitimate is what happens to Michael at the end of the, when Michael yeah. calls David out and is like, how dare you act that way in front yeah. of all these people. And David's response to Michael is, does seem sincere. I think in yeah. that it seems totally sincere. And then Michael is disciplined for her, the way she talks to Saul, she is barren. So that once I get to the end of it, I'm like, okay. I, guess I think what happened is that David gets mad at God. And then he goes and pouts about it for a while. And then he sees what happened, what's happening with the ark. And he was like, it is holy. God's presence dwells with it. And he was like, I want to go back and get it. And he was like, well, we better treat it with the holiness that it is now. He has like a better grasp of what they're doing in transporting this presence of God. And I think that the, me- I was just pondering it and meditating on it. And I feel like the message that God is saying is like, if your worship is real worship, you're not going to be worried about me. Like I've got me. I, you don't have to worry about me and whether I'm going to be okay. Worship me sincerely with all your heart. So that that's all you're thinking about is me and not worrying about whether I'm going to be okay. Like I will, I will be okay. You don't have to worry about the, the, the oxen stumbles. You're not gonna be distracted by that. You're not even going to see that happen because you're going to be completely, you would be completely caught up in me and my goodness and trusting me. And I think about like, how often we try to defend God, protect God, defend his reputation, like all of these things that he's like, your act of worship is to love you love. And don't worry about me. I will take care. I'll take care of me. His desire for us is to fully worship and it's to love him and to love others. And when we're fully engaged in that, we're not worried about defending him or holding him up or protecting him. We're just worshiping in our acts of love toward him and toward others. And we can trust that he's got him. God has God. 
And all we have to worry about is worshiping. And that is evidenced in our faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Jesus, mm-hmm. when Jesus says, it makes me think of that whole, I, that love God, love others. There's a reason why Jesus summed it up that way. Mm-hmm. The other things fall into place, which is kind of what you're saying. Like when we're yeah. caught up in worshiping God, loving God, loving others, we aren't distracted by the other, like those other things. God takes care of all that other stuff. Yeah. Especially in like defending him and that, like, it makes me think of like the thing that really, that I just really have a hard time with is that people arguing over scripture, people arguing over things that just don't matter. It's like, those are things that he takes, he can take care of all of that. Like he really there. Yes. Scripture is important. And yes, I don't know how to say it. I just, it's irritating when we get into conflicts over things that just keep us from doing what is important. Like when, when, Jesus when, those, comes thi- off of when those things that are minor or secondary in scripture disrupt the unity that God calls us to as believers. Yeah. Like it makes me think of Jesus coming off the mountain of transfiguration. And it's the first time that he's left his group of disciples kind of alone by themselves. And they're all arguing over like some guy comes to them to be healed. And then they argue about who can, they're arguing with the Pharisees about who can heal who, and who has what power. And Jesus is like, I left you alone. And like, this is what, like, when did I teach you that this is the way, like, when have you ever seen me argue with spend my time arguing over things with people? Like, this isn't what we do. We attend to the broken. Somehow the broken person ends up in the backdrop while all these people are having this fight and nobody's loving him. And it's like, Mm -hmm. this isn't, when have you ever seen me engage in the, in the discourse of argument over actually attending to the broken and needy among us? Like what, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't need defended. That's my big, that's my big pondering from second Samuel. I like that. Um, Absalom names her, his daughter Tamar. I like that Tamar, David's daughter is named Tamar after his great, great, great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. I, I missed I missed Absalom naming his daughter Tamar, but that's cool. Um, how far we went to thirteen? I think one of the other things that to go back to David, mm-hmm. um, and how his relationship with God kind of evolves in these chapters. I think one of the things that is telling. And I still, I'm, it's, I'm, it's one of those things I've been kind of contemplating. I haven't put my finger on exactly what it is that's telling necessarily, but David's response when his firstborn dies and how he spends like a week yes. begging God to spare his son's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the, when the child dies, his people don't want to go tell him because they're afraid he's going to freak out and get upset. But when he finds out, mm-hmm. he's like, okay, okay, it's done. Like I, God chose to answer my prayer in a different way, like not the way that I wanted him to. And I think a couple things stuck out for me in that part of the story. One David's, well, his initial, the first thing he does too, like he hasn't eaten for six days or seven days or something like that. And he finds out that the child has died has died. He gets up, he cleans himself up and he goes and worships before he even eats anything. He hasn't eaten for like a week and he goes and worships. And I think maybe it ties into what you were saying before about David Mm. learning from that whole incident with Uzzah and then how he is like, okay, I'm going to worship. If this is what we're going to do, I'm going to do it all in. And so when his son dies, he sends that, he spends that week 
begging God for a different outcome. And when it doesn't, he's like, okay, this is the God that I, and I'm going to worship him. And before that, when Nathan is talking to David and he gives him that whole scenario and David is like outraged about, well, how could anyone do this? And Nathan points out, I'm actually talking about you. Um, And David confesses his sin. Nathan says, David says, I've sinned against God. And Nathan says, yes, but that's not the last word. God forgives your sin. You won't die for it, but because of your blasphemous behavior, the son born to you will die. And it just made me think, I mean, we've, we're in the prophets now too. And we've seen this like all through Israel's history, that forgiveness doesn't equal, doesn't cancel out the discipline. Like there are still consequences for our sin against God. And I think sometimes I know I tend to to forget about that for myself, but I'm telling my kids that all the time too. Like you have, even when they come and apologize to me for something, I tell them all the time. That doesn't mean you're the consequences going away. You know what I mean? Like you did this thing, the consequences there for you to learn from it. I appreciate, like, I forgive you and I appreciate all of that, but there's still consequences. And that was just a really, um, while reading that in conjunction with something we read in Ezekiel, which we can get to in a minute, like I said, I haven't put my finger. I think it's just that whole picture of well, I think God part putting of what, pieces into place for us to see how he works and how he that he's true, that he's that right. he does what he says he's going to do, mm-hmm. all of the good and all of the bad. It was funny we were talking about that in our Sunday morning class. We were talking about um oh sharing with them that idea we talked about before about how because God does everything that he does in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and he carries out his wrath in Jerusalem because he said, choose life or death. Mm -hmm. If you choose Mm -hmm. death, this is the atrocity that's going to come. And then we actually see it happen. But because we see that he fulfills, he does this bad thing. It's part of us being able to trust that everything he says is true. Mm -hmm. And so when he says, I will not be angry with you anymore. Now, I know we talked about this last week, but this is cool because Jeff put in like this mic mic drop for the class. Cause I was like, yeah, because like when he says, I will never be angry with you again, when he, in the new covenant, I will never be angry with you again. We can trust that he's not angry with us. He'll, he's never, he'll never be angry with us again. And Jeff is like, I'm almost ashamed to say that I missed the whole gospel message. And he goes, that's because like, God, He's like, he's not angry with us because he did pour out his wrath. He yes. poured out all of yes. his wrath and the wrath that he poured out can't go through Jesus. Like it landed yeah. on him and it can't go past him. Like it is all poured out. He yes. did everything that he said he was going to do on his son. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, yes. Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, I know this, I know this, but at the same mm-hmm. time, just having Jeff be like, it, like the idea that it can't be pushed through. Yes. Jesus, that Jesus took that it image. and it's, yeah, that is a great image. Yeah. Yep. It landed on Jesus and therefore cannot land on us. I can't go through him. Yeah. I was like, that is so cool. But, but, and so he did, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He poured yeah. out his wrath, but he did it all on his son. And so he's not, he can't be angry with us. He said he wouldn't be. And his word is true. And I think one of the things that reading through David and listening to what you're saying, and then something that I've been thinking about in Ezekiel, we, one of the, God is, there's so many characteristics and attributes that make up who God is. And sometimes it seems like they should cancel each other out, like his holiness and his grace, for example. And yet, when we read scripture and we see how he's 
worked all through history with his people, we can see how those things work together. Like his holiness. Yes. He keeps his word to discipline because he's holy and he forgives because he's gracious. Like that all of those things that make God who he is that sometimes seem like they contradict each other. When we, when we read the story that he's given us, we can see how they don't contradict. Like he can't be one without the other. Yes. Makes him who he is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So can we go to, are you? Yes. Yes. Okay. So where do we start? 14. I, I have done way more scribbling and writing in Ezekiel than I ever expected to do. I wrote your name twice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We can go back, but oh. I think this is towards the end. Let's go ahead. I figured out why I wrote your name. I couldn't remember at first. I got oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, but this ties into what we were just talking about. Um, there is a lot of judgment in Ezekiel this week and so in much. just Ezekiel period, but we ended in chapter 20. So the last chapter that we read this week, like towards the end, chapter 44, it says, wait, this was 44. Let me, okay. Yes. Sorry. Verse 40. Okay. So it happens throughout chapter 20. God says, I think I have it underlined at least three times before this, that God acted out of who he was, not how he felt towards the Israelites. Oh, that's so good. Yes. It was so good. So, and every time he said it, he's talking about Sabbaths and how they, he's taught, he's basically taking through their history again and saying, I gave you this and you did this and rejected it. And I acted out of who I was instead of how I felt. Um, but then in verse 44, it says, but dear Israel, you'll also realize that I am God when I respond to you out of who I am, not by what I feel about the evil lives lives you've lived, the corrupt history you've compiled decree of God, the master. So he's talking right, like right before that, he's talking about destruction basically, Uh but then he's, but then he switches to talking about bringing them back and gathering them back and that they will realize that he's God. And then he's going to respond out of who he is, not out of how he feels. He's not, he's responding. I think he's still talking about anger here. I think he's well, because why do I, he's talking about bringing them under. Okay. So right before that, um, 43 gifts and offerings, all your holy sacrifices before that, he says, he'll Israel will worship and he'll receive them with open arms. What's more, I'll receive you as the best kind of offerings. When I bring you back from all the lands and countries in which you've been scattered, I'll demonstrate in the eyes of the world that I am the holy. When I return you to the land of Israel, the land that I solemnly promised with upraised arm to give to your parents, you'll realize that I am God then. And there you'll remember all that you've done, the way you've lived that has made you so filthy and you'll loathe yourselves. But dear Israel, you'll also realize that I am God when I respond to you out of who I am, not by what I feel about the evil lives you've lived, the corrupt history you've compiled, decree of God, the master. So maybe I'm reading it way wrong, but when I read that, I was like that I'm going to want to respond to you based on your evil. And he does like there's holiness where God, there is discipline because of their actions, but he doesn't. And he says that we read this a couple of times, like I didn't completely wipe you out. So when I read that today, I was just thinking he's respond. God is, God is as much grace as he is just and holy. And that is this applying, like, does this, uh, all I keep thinking about is that verse that says he does not afflict from his heart. Is that mm-hmm. what you're talking about? Sort of. Is it yes. connected? 
um, to you in your brain? Maybe I actually wrote that earlier in chapter 18, maybe in verse 23. Um, he's talking about judgment again. <laughs> All of Ezekiel. I know. I actually like by the time I got here, I haven't underlined anything because I'm just like, un- okay, <laughs> like I get it. So I, don't know. I, I love just, that you're I still so much in here. That's like, God is God, like yeah. the end. And I think that's, what's kind of sticking out to me. Obviously I'm reading it. It's refefreshing after Jeremiah. Who's like, wow, wow, wow. Yes. You know, Ezekiel kind of is like warrior right. prophet. Yeah. Yes. Um, but in, in chapter 18, verse 23 ish, he says, um, God is talking about if they're wicked and they turn to me, I'm going to forgive them. Yes. They're my, if they're my people, but then they're wicked, then they're going to be judged. Like there's no, there's always, there's always room for redemption. Always, always Always time for repentance. Yes. Do you think I take pleasure in the death of wicked men and women? Isn't it my pleasure that they turn around no longer living wrong, but living right, really living. I think that's what I saw this week in Ezekiel somehow mix in with the holiness, which is also pretty incredible. I mean, it makes God, God, and it makes us like we've, I think his holiness um, is one of the things that when he judges sin, I think it ties into him keeping his promises, like us knowing we can trust him because he's going to respond in this way because he's holy, right? That there's always grace, like in the midst of all of that, there's always even if it's just a remnant or his heart is that he wants his people. All of this is so that they will know he is God. His heart is that he wants his people to turn back to him. That's what he wants. He doesn't want them to die. You want to know what I found so fascinating this time? It's like in regard to that, it was so unexpected. It was not, it came to me because of your question in the last week's episode where you said, um, I wonder if any of them turned any of those who were left. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been thinking about that this week. Or if there are any who were left. And at the end of chapter 14, it says, this is what the Lord God says, starting in verse 21. How much worse will it be when I send my four devastating judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, dangerous animals, and plague in order to wipe out both man and animal from it. Even so there will be survivors left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Indeed, they will come out to you and you will observe their conduct and actions. Then you will be consoled about the devastation I have brought on Jerusalem, about all I have brought on it. They will bring you consolation when you see their conduct and actions, and you will know that it was not without cause that I have done what I did. This is the declaration of the Lord. He's like, I'll leave some and they'll come back and you'll be like, oh, I see why you did that. These people are nasty. Yeah. (laughs) This is like, oh God. He leaves yeah. a remnant just to remind them of how terrible they were and that he didn't overdo it. And that it. he was just and holy and doing what he did. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh God, oh God, oh God, you're so, and because then in chapter 16, not very much further down, this is what's so beautiful. This is our beautiful God. 16 verse six. I passed by you and saw you thrashing around in your blood. And I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. Yes. I said to you, as you lay in your own blood, live. I made you thrive like plants of the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were stark naked. Then I passed by you and saw you and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. 
This is the declaration of the Lord. He's talking about before when he called them his, he's talking Mm -hmm. about earlier. Um, But just like the reminder of like the picture of his calling them out and making them his, his own and just his deep love for them. And like um, an adoration, like a, um, a suitor or a Mm -hmm. boyfriend, just yeah. Beautiful. So that section this week, I think it was probably combined with, I listened to the audio book of um, Jackie Hill Perry's gay girl, good God. Oh, she reads her gay. She reads the gay girl, good God. She wrote. And it was super quick. I think it was like, I mean, I had it on like not regular speed, like a little bit faster. And it was probably less than three hours for her to read the whole thing. But oh my goodness, if I had been reading it with a book, I'd been like underlining everything and put like, I would have, there would have been so much. This was just fun. It was like just having a conversation with her kind of. So when I read that section in Ezekiel 16, where God's talking to Israel and comparing her basically to a bride and him rescuing her. Um, like when she comes of age, he realizes like, I want you to be my bride. And well, then the second half of that is not pretty. It is about how he, he says, one of the things that I underlined in here, you even pervert whoredom. Like they take, like they take being a whore and they make it even Even worse. Yes. Um, That's good. And he says, because they're paying wives who are unfaithful to their husbands accept gifts from their lovers and men commonly pay their whores, but you pay your lovers. You bribe men from all over to come to bed with you. You're just the opposite of the regular whores who get paid for sex. Instead, you pay men for their favors. You even pervert Corden. And that's like at the end of his whole description of what Israel has become. And so it made me think about, and I had Jackie Hill Perry's book in my head too, like her, she talks a lot about becoming a believer and what it's like to be to move into a heterosexual marriage and like the struggles that go along with all of that. And I was trying, looked and looked, this is the advantage of reading a book as I could have underlined it, but I was trying to find this quote. She's talking about this thing and she's, it's the whole thing is good, but she was like, because holiness, like that was like her wrap up. Like she's, I feel like that's her, everything comes back to God's holiness and him being God and having the right to tell us Mm -hmm. how to live life. But all that to say, when I was reading Ezekiel 16 this week, it made me think back to, um, actually, I think we just talked about on the recap last week about how the, the Jerusalem council boils when they're talking about circumcision and they boil it down to those three things. Like, these are the three things that matter. These are the things we want you to care about. And one of them is to guard the sanctity of sex and marriage, I think is the way that the Mm -hmm. message something morality of sex and marriage. And it, when we, when I read that, like, I know that I mean, being raised in this like conservative Christian world that I was raised in, I know that that's that I believe that matters to God Uh for a lot of practical reasons too. But I was, when I read this, I was thinking, we know that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church too, but it's before that, like it goes back to Israel, like marriage, God uses marriage to show his relationship to his people Mm -hmm. in every throughout history, not just Mm -hmm. with Christ. I mean, it's, and that's why it matters so much. Like it matters because God wants us to know him, right? Uh Because holiness, because God wants us to know him. That's why it matters Uh because he is using, like we've talked about, I know I've said this before that, that book that I read last year, I don't remember what it's called now. Um, he talks about how God gives us, um, like 
in creation, God gives us tangible boxes basically so that we can be like, Oh, this is, this is how I can understand who God is through this tangible created box. And, and the morality of sex and marriage is one of those tangible boxes that God has given us to understand how he relates to his people. Yes, yes, yes. And I, and I think that's why it matters. That's why it matters then and now mm-hmm. for the Jerusalem council, for Israel, for believers today. I think, I think it matters. And I think that's why. Yeah. So good. Oh man. I'm doing a lot of talking today. <laughs> okay. I think this is my last thing from Ezekiel. It might be my favorite thing at the end of Uh, at the end of chapter 16, I actually really want to know what it says in, are you doing CSB still? Yeah. Starting in verse, I don't know, maybe 62 ish. Uh Um, he's saying you broke my covenant, but all the same, even though you treated my oath with contempt, okay, I'm going to start in 59 and you broke the covenant all the same. I'll remember the covenant I made with you when you were young and I'll make a new covenant with you that will last forever. You'll remember your sorry past and be properly contrite when you receive back your sisters, both the older and the younger. I'll give them to you as daughters, but not as participants in your covenant. I'll firmly establish my covenant with you and you'll know that I am God. You'll remember your past life and face the shame of it. But when I make atonement for you, make everything right after all you've done, it will leave you speechless to create of God the master. Yeah. You know, like we've talked so much about how like understanding our brokenness is what makes grace so sweet speaking of the topic who are her sisters okay, sodom so and samaria or that sodom and samaria mm-hmm. and what does it say about sodom that to- did i don't know about you but i loved it it totally surprised me this is what the iniquity of your sister sodom she and her daughters had pride plenty of food and comfortable security but didn't support the poor and needy oh where is oh yeah they're this is yeah. 49 Hmm. that's not what we remember Sodom for. No, no, we preach other things, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty clear picture of what had God most upset with Sodom. Yeah. And he says that Israel has flown outdone it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Second Corinthians. Uh, we don't have a ton of time left, so I, love, I think I love. I think I remember last year feeling surprised by Philippians. <coughs> Me too. How much has been there? I'm surprised this year. I have hearts mm-hmm. on like. Yeah. I don't usually draw hearts on scripture, but I just have hearts on these new. Oh yeah, I'm gonna just. just I have a lot. Yeah. I don't know what. So read, read Second Corinthians. Yeah. In chapter three. He talks Ugh. about them being living letters, but the ministry of the spirit compared to the letters written on stone, the ministry of the letters written on stones came with glory. So the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses's face because of the, its glory, which is set aside. How will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious for if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. Uh, in fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. Just the ministry of this, the Holy Spirit is like, yes, even I like that even better than my version. He doesn't use the word glory in the message. I love that. Yeah. Like that's, that's us, like us simply Mm -hmm. living, us simply living according to the spirit 
and the freedom that it was supposed to give us Mm -hmm. to just live out of love, according to the Holy spirit is like so much more beautiful and Mm -hmm. glorious than ever, ever trying to be something great through the law, like ever could have ever been that only brought death. And if that was glorious, how much more glorious is that is what we get to do. Mm -hmm. That was it. Were you reading like towards the beginning of three, the end of three is what basically some, what you just said is basically summed up in the end of chapter three. Yeah. I have another heart written there too. Yeah. Yeah. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. Mm. That transformation process is everything. Go ahead. Yeah. I, so I love how the message this was when I, I recognized it for what it was, but I love how the message, um, translates this, um, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Yes. Yes. I just feel like the more freedom I experience, the more like him I become. I don't know if that makes any sense. Mm. Like, it's like, it's like a correlation, like the freer I am, like even just trying to describe to people how like right now, I feel like I've never understood before. I understand now more than ever and have been praying that I won't forget it. And God just reassured me this morning, actually through scripture that he will, his right hand holds me fast. Like, I don't have to worry about forgetting this thing and then like slipping into whatever, but like this thing is, he'll hold me fast with this idea of just doing ministry from rest, like this idea that I don't have to be anything or do anything or worry about my faults and my failures. Like, yes, they're all there. And just by bringing myself to every situation that he calls me to is the act of worship. And he does whatever he's going to do through the, in the process. And it just to do ministry from rest, there's like no anxiety. There's no pressure. There's no, it's just freedom. Like, I just feel like there's so much Mm -hmm. more freedom in my life to be like, not that I'm never going to make mistakes and not that I'm never going to be wrong. You know, it's not, that's not it. It's just the pressure to always be right. Or the pressure to do it perfectly or the pressure to always, or to have it figured out before you do it or yeah. Or to have my work always result in somebody else's freedom or to have my work always result in somebody else's salvation. Or like, it doesn't like the outcome isn't up to me. Just like who I am isn't up to me. Like I just, all I, nothing, none of it is up to me, but it's the act. You're of, not getting grades along the way. Like yeah. God's not like plus on that one. Ooh, yeah, that was like, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's just ministering from rest to such a more beautiful place to be. Yep. Second Corinthians was good, but I just am going to recommend that people go read it. Okay. Um, this is, I have lots of things, but I'm going to just do this one thing. I think. Um, I want this, I think I'm going to hang this on my wall somewhere because Mm -hmm. it's, it's the gospel in a nutshell. Second Corinthians five, end of verse 20 and verse 21, um, become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How you ask in Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong. So we could put, be put right with God, which has always been like, that goes back to that whole wrath thing that you were talking about that whole, that's always, it's always been one of my favorites. Like. God 
laid on him who knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin to become the righteousness. I think that's the verse, right? Yep. But become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. Mm -hmm. I just, again, like that just makes me think of that passage from David that you were talking about that idea of David going from Mm. worshiper of God to a friend of God. Like it's like, we just watched it grow up in that one passage. That's the recap. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the recap. If you enjoyed this discussion and maybe you're wondering how to get more highlights out of your own scripture reading, you might be interested in joining our in-depth Bible studies where we model our version of inductive Bible study. You can find out more at divecollective.org and we will see you next week.